How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. What is a credit score or like what even is credit? What's this number that seems so powerful and over all of our heads? What it is, is borrowed money. In simplest terms, Credit is money that you borrow from somewhere or something. It's money that you borrow with a promise to pay back later. And usually it comes with interest, which means what's the cost of me lending you this money? And once you start getting into the formal economy and borrowing money from big financial institutions, then it all comes together and is recorded in what we call a credit report. And here they have really detailed information about, okay, when you borrowed this money, what did you agree to borrow? How much? When did you say you were going to pay it back? How much interest were you going to pay back? And so you start getting into what we call the terms of loans or things like this. And many times it's set by financial institutions or lenders or things like this. They'll say, okay, Erica, I'll let you borrow these $200,000, but you have to pay it back to me within 30 years. On top of that, I want 4% of interest to the $200,000 that you took out. That means that within 30 years, I have to find a way to pay back the $200,000 plus the 4% that they kind of agreed to to let me borrow the money. You're listening to Yo Quiero Dinero, a personal finance podcast for the modern Latina. I'm your host, Janice Torres, award-winning Latina personal finance expert. I didn't always have my financial shit together, but when I started looking for POC-friendly personal finance podcasts, I couldn't find any. And so Yo Quiero Dinero was born. On this show, I'll show you how to make dinero, how to keep your dinero, and most importantly, how to make it grow. Each week, I'm connecting you with the most brilliant minds in the world of money and business. So you can learn about investing, entrepreneurship, and building wealth. The best part? I'm dishing up all this knowledge with a sassy side of sazón. So if you're ready to be poderosa with your dinero, you've come to the right place. Let's dive in. Before we hop into today's conversation, I want to remind you to follow us on social. If you're loving this podcast and you want more community, you want to find out more about our events and all the stuff that we have going on behind the scenes, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and everywhere else you love to hang out on the internet. If you're loving this podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review if you listen to us on Apple. It's the easiest way to share our podcast with people that you know and love, and it helps us get discovered by amazing listeners like you. So take a moment, leave us a review, share us with your friends and family, subscribe so that you never miss an episode, and make sure to check out our blog, YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com, where you can sign up for our email list and you'll never miss an episode. Plus, you get exclusive invitations to our live events, special discounts for our digital courses, and as always, our best personal finance tips and advice to help you be poderosa with your dinero. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get into the episode. Erica, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here for this very special episode that is being brought to us by Unidos US. You are a part of their amazing team, and I'm so excited for folks to find out more about you, the work that you do within Unidos US, and also what does Unidos US do? So let's start off with an introduction into you and who you are and what you do. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. My name is Erika Mancinas, and As you mentioned, I work for an organization called Unidos US. We're actually the largest Hispanic, Latino civil rights and advocacy organization here in the United States. So Unidos was founded over 50 years ago, 
We're headquartered in Washington, D.C., and we do work in a lot of different areas. One of the biggest arms of Unidos is our policy and advocacy branch. As we're headquartered in Washington, D.C., what we try to do is understand the experiences of Latinos across the country at a local level, at a state level, and even at a federal level, and elevate challenges and issues and things that are really affecting our community to folks in Washington, D.C. to basically say, hey, we're here, we're contributing to the fabric and the framework of this country and this economy. There are ways that you all can continue to support us so that we can continue to thrive. But I actually work in our financial empowerment programming. So apart from policy and advocacy, we also have a programming branch that actually creates programs in a lot of different areas. So we have education programming, workforce development programming, and housing and financial empowerment programming. And these programs are built specifically to kind of meet the needs of different communities across the country. So you can imagine workforce development, really helping equip people with skills and resources to be able to grow within the workforce, find meaningful and fulfilling jobs and things like this. And then finally, we have an affiliate engagement branch. We partner with almost 300 community-based organizations across the country. These are organizations that are day in and day out meeting the community members and meeting clients where they are, really understanding their needs and helping to connect resources to opportunities for them to thrive, to really be successful within their communities. You may know Unidos U.S.'s motto is Stronger Communities, Stronger America. So we really believe that Latinos contribute every day to the fabric and the framework of this country. And by building up the strength of the Latino community across the country, we really are building up also what it means thriving in America that all of us can be proud of. So absolutely. I think that work is so important, especially when we look at census data and statistics that indicate that this country is going to be majority Latino at some point in the near future. And so if we're not doing the work to strengthen the community from the ground up, we're kind of setting America up for maybe losing our footing in the world because the future of America is Latino, in my opinion. So I love the work that you and your organization are doing, and I'm so glad that we're here to talk about finances because as someone who works in this space and heavily focuses on the Latino community, I've seen a lot of kind of unique challenges that we have as a community, not just from a lack of knowledge around how to invest and how to start businesses and how to access credit, but even just cultural traumas and generational stuff and baggage that we have to navigate through when it comes to money. And I'm wondering if you had to identify maybe the top one to three common themes around finances in the Latino community that are resonating overarching theme that folks are dealing with, what would those things be? You bring up a great point around many times there's a narrative around the Latino community and finances. This is a population because of maybe language barriers, because of cultural barriers. It's just a group of folks that aren't really going to enter what we call the formal economy. And I think this is inaccurate. When we look at really what are some of those barriers, we see probably at the top mistrust of financial institutions. You know, when we think about immigrants and the financial institutions in Latin America and South America, they're very different than the banking and financial institutions that we have here in the U.S. So a lot of people are coming with that mistrust of, is my money going to be in the bank next week when I go to take it out? Is inflation going to make my money worth less than what it is today? So I think these are real fears that people have. And I think they're valid because these are lived experiences that folks have. And so when they come to a new country and they begin to understand how to navigate different aspects of society here, we have a big focus of financial institutions. And quite frankly, in the United States, they're very strong, right? Probably strongest in the world that disconnect between I can trust my bank and my money and that it's going to be safe there. Many times the kind of age old adage is I'm going to keep my money under the mattress because at least I know that it's going to be there tomorrow or the next day. So I would say that's probably one of the biggest ones, the mistrust of financial institutions. And then second, really just understanding how the system works, right? And that goes to, for sure, the language 
but even more than the language is, are there financial products that meet the community where they are? If I'm going to put money in the bank, am I going to get charged maintenance fees? Am I going to get charged overdraft fees? And not necessarily because I'm bad at managing my money, but because the way that I get paid or because the frequency in which I get paid, it doesn't match up to the parameters that the bank puts on me to be able to have a bank account that works for me. I would say the second thing is having financial products that work for our community and our population. And then of course, the third one is just, I mentioned before, the language barriers. And so really understanding what are these products, but having it explained to me in a way, not only in a language I understand, but in a way in which I understand and fully internalize all of the different terms and things like this. So yeah, acknowledging the complexity of the financial system here in the United States, I think is so important for the institutions that control it, because I think a lot of what happens is there's a lot of gatekeeping, maybe intentionally or unintentionally. And there's a lot of folks who just opt out because it feels out of reach or it feels too complicated. And so I wanted to talk today in this episode about credit, because we've never actually done an episode exclusively on the topic, even though it's something that's so important. And when I think back to my own introduction to the concept of credit and credit cards, my parents instilled the fear of God in me. They said, credit cards will ruin your life. Never get a credit card. We did it when we were in our 20s. We ended up having to file for bankruptcy because we got into too much debt. We didn't understand how it works. Stay away from it at all costs. And so I had to sneak my first credit card application because I didn't want them to know. And I was just so afraid of it for such a long time because I didn't understand that it's important to understand the system and then use it to your advantage. So when you're approaching things from fear around money, you're always going to come from a place of the ability to exercise that tool or to utilize it to its fullest potential is going to be thwarted. It's going to be stunted because you're coming at it from that lens of like, oh my God, what if I do something wrong? Maybe I just won't do it at all. I'm curious what your childhood experience or learnings around credit were. Before I kind of grew into this role at Unidos, I was working as a financial coach. And as a financial coach, you work one-on-one with clients specifically around their financial goals or needs or barriers that they're experiencing. So many times I heard stories similar to the one you just mentioned. These are people's real lived experiences that they saw firsthand from their parents or from their aunts and uncles. And those kind of experiences are really difficult because, yeah, you can tell me credit's good and I need it, but I saw how it could be detrimental and how it could really make life difficult. So I'm going to be cautious or I'm going to stray away from that. So actually, my parents are originally from Mexico. They came to the United States in the early 80s, and they received amnesty in 1986. And so my experience has been a little bit different than a lot of people's that I know in that although my parents were immigrants, I've always known them to be citizens. And this is, I think, a huge privilege in a way in terms of them being able to enter into society and have access to a lot of things that many folks who don't have citizenship aren't able to access, but still have to live in the same way, right? Still have goals of buying a house, still have goals of doing well for their children, still have goals of wanting to give themselves and their children a better life. And so that's really where this barrier comes in. But essentially, my parents said, when I knew the difference between money in the U.S. and money in Mexico, because we would go back every year a few times to visit family there. My dad would give me a $10 bill right here in the U.S. And I knew that, okay, $10, I can get myself a few sodas, I can get some chips, whatever, whatever. But I knew once we went to Mexico, those $10 turned into 150 pesos, right? It turned like exponentially much more. And I knew that with that money, this could last me a whole month's worth if I'm really good with it. So it was from a really young age that I began to understand that money means different things in different countries and in different places. But when it came to credit, my parents became homeowners really early on, and they helped us to understand we're paying the mortgage and the mortgage is money that we pay to the bank. And because of all of these different stepping stones that they had, these different opportunities that they had. My siblings and I were able to go to university and were able to kind of have, in some ways, a different 
lived experience than many Latinos might have in the United States. But still, one thing that really struck me when I was doing financial coaching is that, like I said, we all have the, in many ways, the same goals. The Latino community is one that is very family-centric, multi-generational, want to be able to be productive and have fulfilling lives and contribute to the communities in which we live and all of these things. The real kind of frustration comes in with because of your status or because of whatever, you might not be able to enjoy those privileges. I think we've come a long way with credit and kind of access to credit. And now it's just kind of what you mentioned, helping to flip the narrative of ways that people across all different types of situations can use credit to their advantage to really help them achieve their goals. Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting to me to meet folks still to this day refuse to have a credit card or open a credit line or anything. My partner's like that. He said he grew up in a household where his dad was like, if you can't pay cash for it, you can't afford it. And while I can absolutely appreciate that logic, okay, but if I want to buy a house, like how the hell are we going to do that? We ain't going to save uh, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars to buy a house in cash unless you find some sort of inheritance or a windfall. The reality of it is that for most of us, when we want to access things like acquiring assets like a home or buying a car or even funding your college education, we're going to have to take on debt. And so this is how credit plays into our lives. So let's start off with talking about, first off, what is an actual credit score? What does this number mean? That's a great question. And I just want to make a comment before we jump into that, to your point of why do I even need credit or definitely those big ticket items like buying a house and getting a car are the ones that come top of mind. But I would say even, I don't know if you've had this experience or have heard, but even getting a cell phone, right? Like they run your credit report to see what your score is. And if you have no credit or bad credit, they'll give you the cell phone, but you have to pay maybe a $200 deposit or something like this. And so definitely important for those big purchases. Credit is so important to our economy and our society that even those smaller things that you wouldn't even blink twice or think about, not having credit or having bad credit can negatively affect you. Even things like applying for a job, right? In many states, they pull your credit report as part of a background check. And it seems silly and it seems frustrating because it's like, I'm going to be a good worker. This is a job that I really want. Why am I getting penalized for maybe it was something my parents took out in my name several years ago and now it's affecting me. So definitely those big asset building things, but also in your day to day, not having credit or having bad credit can come back and bite you in ways that you never even thought about. I've seen that even with setting up your utilities, they will make you put a deposit on your account if your credit score is not great. Absolutely, yeah. Or even renting an apartment. You become independent and you're moving out and you're getting your first place and you come to realize that I have to put an extra $1,000, $2,000 deposit or I get denied for the apartment altogether. And then it becomes a real headache, but definitely. So what is a credit score or like what even is credit? What's this number that seems so powerful and over all of our heads? Essentially, what it is, is borrowed money. In simplest terms, credit is money that you borrow from somewhere or something. It could be a bank, a mortgage lender. When you think about student loans, it could be the federal government. It's money that you borrow with a promise to pay back later. And usually it comes with interest, which means what's the cost of me lending you this money? All of that, once you start getting into the formal economy and borrowing money from big financial institutions, then it all comes together and is recorded in what we call a credit report. And here they have really detailed information about, okay, when you borrowed this money, what did you agree to borrow? How much? When did you say you were going to pay it back? How much interest were you going to pay back? And so you start getting into what we call the terms of loans or things like this. And many times it's set by financial institutions or lenders or things like this. They'll say, okay, Erica, I'll let you borrow these $200,000 for your house or whatever, but you have to pay it back to me within 30 years. On top of that, I want 4% of interest to the $200,000 that you took out. That means that within 30 years, I have to find a way, figure out a way to pay back the $200,000 plus the 4% that they kind of agreed to, to let me borrow the money. All of that goes on your credit report. 
your credit score then is how good you are to staying within those terms, right? And so the higher your score is, that basically gives an indication to, hey, this person does what they say they're going to do because they say that they're going to pay this loan back, this borrowed money every month with a $500 payment. And for the past 10 years, they've been doing just that. This is a good borrower. On the flip side, if maybe you fall behind one month, life happens, things pile up, your car breaks down. So instead of paying your mortgage, you pay to fix the car because if you don't have a car, you can't go to work. If you can't go to work, you can't pay anybody. You can see how these things, little by little, life starts to happen. And so maybe you do fall behind on getting these payments in on time. And that's when your credit score goes down. That basically gives an indication to creditors, to lenders, this person agreed to these terms, but for whatever reason, they're not able to fulfill them. And that's when you start seeing, what does it mean to have bad credit? It means that somewhere along the way, at some point, there was a decision made on you as a borrower that maybe you're not that good of a borrower. Yes, you can give this person money, you can let them borrow your money, but be careful because they may or may not pay you back or they may or may not fall behind. That's basically kind of credit in simple terms. And yeah. Awesome. I love that explanation. It makes it really easy to understand. So let's dive more into the actual numbers. Can you tell us what the range is for your credit score and what are the different factors that affect that number? Definitely. And I think one of the things with credit that's difficult to really grasp is that you hear about the credit score and the credit report and the credit bureaus as if there's one or two or maybe three entities that determine everything. But in fact, when you talk about credit scores, there's lots of different credit scores that companies or lenders may or may not use. I think the two most popular, though, are the Vantage score and the FICO score. And to make it more complicated, Vantage and FICO are also constantly updating. And so it's like, do you have the FICO eight score or do you have the FICO seven score? Because FICO eight counts this by this much, but it counts this other thing by this much. It's not really precise. Like you can never know exactly. I know for sure my credit score is this number. And I know that if I pay back $50 more on my credit card, it'll pump up my score by three points. And also because that's kind of intellectual property that the credit companies have. And so what they try to do is set general parameters to what's a good score and also what affects your score. I would say the most popular one is probably the FICO score. When people talk about what's your credit score in general terms, they're talking about FICO or they're asking about the FICO score. And that range goes from 300 to 850. So 300 being the low end, 850 being the high end. Again, there's not a hard and fast rule what makes a good credit score, but typically high 600s into 700s and above you're going to get favorable rates. You're going to get approved. Again, getting approved means that you have a history of showing you're good at borrowing money. So companies are not going to be hesitant. Banks are not going to be hesitant to offer you loans. And another thing that's really good about having a higher credit score is you can get loans and credit cards and things like this at more favorable rates, maybe financing a car or getting a mortgage or things like this. The higher your score is, once you start getting into the high 600s, 700s, 800s, lenders are usually more willing to give you lower interest rates, which means that the money that you borrow is cheaper than if you have a bad or a lower credit score. They may still approve you and give you that loan or give you that credit card, but they're going to charge you more for it. It's going to become more expensive for you to borrow that money. And so I would say a good score, 670 and above is good. And then once you get into the 700, 750s, then you're considered excellent. And really, you'll get the best rates and be able to really take charge of the ways in which you're borrowing money. And you have a lot more options that can be beneficial to you. But things that affect your credit score, there are a few categories that really can help you build or alternatively can damage your score. The first one is your payment history. And this is probably the biggest chunk of what will affect your score. And so like I said before, credit is borrowed money. And the most important thing that people want to know when they lend money to you is, will you pay back 
in the way you said you would pay back in a timely manner and also the full amount. And so that goes into your payment history, which is about 30% of your score. I would say at a bare minimum, try to make minimum payments on time on all of your different loans and things like this every month. Because once you start falling behind on payments, that's when your credit score can really take a hit. So the first one is payment history. The second one is this term called credit utilization, which is more toward credit cards. If you have a credit card that has a $1,000 limit, your credit utilization is basically how much of that $1,000 do you charge? And the best practice is you typically don't want to charge more than 30%. Some even say even 10%. That means keeping it below, if you have a $1,000 limit, don't charge $1,000. Don't even charge $500 or $300. Try to keep it within the one to $300 range, which seems a little bit counterintuitive, right? Because then you say, okay, why did this bank give me this credit card if I'm not supposed to use it or I'm not supposed to keep it and charge different things on it? Because then you get into the thing where maybe you have a credit card and you don't use it for three months. You might get a notification from the bank and say, hey, are you going to use this card? Because if not, we're going to close it. And that's not helpful either. And so it is kind of this balance between using the credit that you have, but using it in a way that to the lenders is responsible. So that's the credit utilization, not charging more than 30% and really as a best practice, 10%. The third one is the length of your credit history. And that goes to how long have you borrowed money and not necessarily in one fell swoop, but For example, I got my first credit card 10 years ago. So that means that the length of my credit history is 10 years back. And that goes into it because then financial institutions and banks and lenders can say, okay, we know that Erica has been borrowing money in some capacity for the past 10 years. And we have 10 years worth of examples of when she pays back on time, when she doesn't pay back on time. So we can say with pretty good confidence that Her behavior in the past will translate over to her behavior in the future. Typically, the longer the length of your credit history is, that also helps your score positively. The types of accounts that you have also help, and they call it like your credit mix. There's fundamentally two types of credit accounts. So one is called installment and one is called revolving. Installment credit is things like your mortgage or student loans or personal loans or your car payment. And that basically means that every month you pay the same amount, regardless of if you owe $200,000 or if you owe $1,000. If you took your car out in the first month and it was a $50,000 loan, and by the last month or second to last month, you only have $800 left to pay off, every month you're going to pay the same amount. So that's an installment credit. The other one is called revolving, and this is more like your credit cards, your store cards, Macy cards or Old Navy card or whatever the case is. And the minimum payments that you have on those types of credit increase or decrease depending on how much you owe on the card, right? So if you owe maybe a higher amount on your credit card, your minimum payment is going to be higher. Whereas if you owe maybe less than $100, maybe your minimum payment is going to be $25, $15. And so another thing that creditors want to see is that you can take out these different types of credit and manage them both responsibly, right? That you can make payments on your installment credit as well as making payments on your revolving credit. And then the last one, which is one of the least important ones, but still a factor is recent activity. So how often are you asking for credit or soliciting credit? If you're soliciting credit every week, you're asking for a new credit card or every month you are applying for different things, this might send a red flag to lenders and creditors because they might be thinking, okay, Erica asked for three credit cards in the past week. Is she going through something financially? Does she need a lot of cash all of a sudden? What's going on? And so I don't know if you've heard of this or has happened to you, but maybe you have a bill that's coming up and it's $200 and it's unexpected. So you're like, okay, I'll get a credit card and hopefully I'll pay it. And then once things settle down, then I can pay it back. And you get denied at one place and then you apply at another bank. You get denied at that bank. 
you apply to another bank and you get denied. So once you kind of set those things in motion, that second bank can see that you applied already once and were denied. Hmm, what's going on here? And by the time you get to the third or the fourth bank, they can see successively all the times you've been denied. And so really kind of a rule of thumb is apply for credit when you need it, not when it's available to you necessarily. And these days, I think we're all victims to the constant mail that comes in. You've been pre-approved and all you have to do is sign this and just call us. And those things may seem and sound appealing, but really I would caution to solicit credit and to get credit really only when you need it. Thank you for that breakdown. That's really helpful for us to understand what are the different factors and how they weigh in. So for someone who doesn't have established credit right now, they want to start building it. How do you go about that? Because you've got to be able to find someone who can take the chance on you because they're going to be the first ones to issue you credit. So is it better to go with a bank or a credit union? What's the best approach to start building your credit? That's a great question. And it is at catch 22 because you might not get approved if you don't have a credit profile and you can't build a credit profile until you get approved. And so what's that first step for people that don't have any credit or maybe have bad credit and haven't been able to get approved? I would say getting a secured credit card or a secured loan. And you can get these at large banks. You can also find them at smaller credit unions. But essentially what they are is instead of the bank taking a chance on you and saying, okay, we'll let you borrow this money. And we know that you don't have a credit profile or credit history, but we'll kind of see how things go. The secured credit card allows a bank to have some sort of backing. And so usually you have to leave a deposit. It could be for the same amount of the credit limit that is given to you. So let's say you want a $500 credit card. So you'll leave a $500 deposit in the bank and they'll give you that credit card. And it's great because it'll start reporting to the credit bureaus as if it were a regular credit card. The bank lends you $500 and you begin to use it and understanding credit utilization, you pay back your bills every month on time. And usually after a set period of time, could be six months, could be a year, they give you that money back, that deposit that you made, they give it back to you if everything went well, right? The flip side of that is, We're going to ask you to leave a deposit. We're going to give you this credit card. But in the event that you fall behind or you default, that deposit that you gave us is what we're going to use as collateral toward this credit card. So that's one way. And it doesn't have to be as high as $500. I've seen some banks, you can open secured credit cards for $50. So that's another option. Another thing I would say is if you have some sort of relationship with a financial institution already, Maybe you have a checking account and a savings account, but you've never opened a credit card. Typically, if you have a good relationship with them, they're willing to take a chance on you because they know they have access to your accounts. They know that you don't overdraft. They know that you're pretty responsible with your money. So that can also be a way to get your foot into building a credit profile without maybe having to leave a security deposit. And the third thing I would say is there's a lot of bureaus, I'm thinking of one specifically, Experian, that you can begin to track what we call non-alternative credit. These are things like making your rent payment on time, even things like paying your cell phone on time or paying Netflix or some of these other streaming services, but things that you would typically not traditionally think as credit. And maybe they're not being reported on all of the credit bureaus, But it's a way for you to get your foot in the door. Once you begin to report on those non-traditional credit building products, then you can apply for a credit card. So Experian's product is called Experian Boost. Anyone can sign up for it. It's free. And basically, you just connect your cell phone payment or your Netflix payment, or in some cases, your rent payment as a way to say, look, I don't have a credit card, but I do have other payments that I pay on time. I'd like to start building my credit profile in earnest. I love those strategies. I want to offer one too that I've actually used to help my niece who is 14 start building her credit even before she can get a credit card. And I've also helped partners and family members and whatnot. So you can actually make folks an authorized user on your accounts. That would require you to be the one that has good credit. And I always recommend if you're going to take that approach, Don't necessarily plan to give that card to the person that you're trying to help with their credit. 
they don't necessarily need it. They can just benefit off of your responsible credit usage without having to incur additional charges and things like that on the account. So if you have good credit and you want to help someone in your life, that's also an option. Just make sure that you're retaining access to that card so that it doesn't become a potential issue in the future. Okay, so let's talk about the credit report. How often is that updated? Is it monthly? Is it yearly? Is it kind of whenever the heck they feel like it? <laughs> if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online store shop phase to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash dinero, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash dinero now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash dinero. <laughs> Good question. And kind of the same thing with the credit score. And there's not one credit bureau that manages everything a lot of people talk about the big three bureaus. So I mentioned one of them earlier, Experian. The second one is TransUnion. And the third is Equifax. And so these are the three credit bureaus. By and large, most of your loans and your credit cards and these different things are going to be reported on one, if not all three. But actually, there are over 50 or 60 credit reporting agencies. And some of them are really specific. Some of them are mortgage specific. Some of them are car loan specific. But if you look at your credit report from these three, you're probably looking at 99% of what can be on any credit report out there. So they're almost aggregating all of this information from all the other people. Yeah, exactly. And that could be tricky too, because maybe you rely only on your Experian report, but there might be something on your TransUnion report that's not reported on Experian. So it's definitely a good rule of thumb to at least check all three once a year, but they're updated once a month. And that's because you can imagine we make payments on most of our bills once a month. If you start falling behind on your credit card for one month or two months, that's going to be reported to those credit bureaus pretty shortly after because they want to make sure that the credit score that they look at and the credit report that they look at today is as accurate as it can be and not kind of a snapshot of six months ago type of thing. And so when it comes to actually getting access to your credit score and your report, how does that process work? Do we have to pay for that information? Yeah, it's much easier to get your credit report than your scores, although you can get both of them for free. So 
you can get your report once a year for free from the top three bureaus, the big three, at a website called www.annualcreditreport.com. And all you have to do is enter some information, your name, your date of birth, your address, and then it will ask you some security questions. The security questions in 2014, where did you work? And it'll have maybe your employer and it'll have other employers that you've never heard of. In 2008, what car loan did you take out? List different cars, but none of them are the ones that you took out. And typically people start freaking out because they're like, whoa, is this car loan on my credit card? I never did that. But really what those questions are meant for is they only want you to pull your report, right? So you'll know where you worked, you'll know what loans you should or shouldn't have. And so once you put in your personal information and answer those security questions, you should have access to all three of those, your Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax report. I encourage people to look at their reports at least once a year because it's going to have a lot of different information other than what credit you've taken out or what money you've borrowed, things like that. It's also going to have personal information. So it's going to list your current address. It's going to list your legal name. It's going to list your date of birth. And I've seen this a lot, especially in my financial coaching sessions. Maybe fathers and sons have the same name. Something might show up on the son's credit report and it's like, well, no, my dad took that out. I never had that. Maybe it's negatively impacting your score or similar birthdays or same address, things like this. So all of that information that's inaccurate, that's incomplete, that you think shouldn't be on your credit report, you're actually entitled to dispute all of that information. And it's totally free to be able to dispute it. And the bureaus have to respond to you within 30 days, or they have to remove it from your report altogether. That's a great way to take charge and take control of what's being reported on my account and making sure that it's accurate. Even if you did fall behind on payments and it is true that you fell behind on payments, the credit bureaus let you write a letter. You can write a few sentences about why that account fell into default or why you fell behind. And this is a way for you also to make your case to different things that might show up on your report itself. Now, at annualcreditreport.com, it's not going to show you your credit score. Remember, credit score is ran and controlled by FICO, Vantage, and these different companies. And the report itself is ran and controlled by Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax. So to get your credit score, there's a few different ways that you can do that. One of the ways that I always encourage people to do it is if you have a relationship with a financial institution, especially if you have a credit card with them, it's usually included as part of the card services, right? Somewhere on your mobile app or somewhere on the website, it's going to give you the opportunity to see your FICO score or to see your Vantage score. And this is a good way to get an idea of what your score is. And you can peek into it once a month, all the time. If you go into it today and then you go into tomorrow and the next day, you'll probably notice it doesn't update because again, those scores update about once a month, but at least you get an idea of what's on your score. The other way you can get your score for free is if you actually solicit credit and you're approved or denied, you can ask to see what's your credit score. So let's say that you're getting a new cell phone and you get denied, we need you to pay a security deposit, you can say, well, what's my score? They have to tell you what it is. That's another way you can get it for free. But otherwise, if you don't have yet a relationship with a financial institution and maybe you forget or don't think to ask when you solicit credit, whether you're approved or denied, you would have to pay for that FICO score. I know some people use apps like Credit Karma that gives you an estimate of your score. And so I just caution, because I know Credit Karma and things like that are free, but it's not going to be your accurate score, your actual score. It'll be an estimate of what your score is. Okay. That's good to know. I did not know that. I thought I was looking at my actual score in Credit Karma. So good to know y'all. And yeah, I've noticed that with my American Express online dashboard and Chase and these other institutions, they usually will include that score for free. So make sure that you're taking advantage of those resources if you already have those established relationships. Okay. So obviously as a member of the Latino community, we understand that there are folks that come from all over the world. Sometimes they are not here with a social security number. Can they access credit in the United States without a social security number? And if so, how? Yes, you can. Your credit profile is going to be built on different pieces of personal identifying information, your name, 
your date of birth, your address, your employment history. So you can use, as well as your social security number, all of these, the more pieces you have, the more sure you won't get confused with someone else, right? Because the social is unique. So that's my number. Sometimes people have the same birthdays. Sometimes people have the same names, things like that. They live in the same household. And so really the social is just an additional way to confirm that you're keeping each person's profile and credit report separate from somebody else's, maybe who lives in the same household or has the same name. But it's not impossible to build credit without a social security number because you can still use those other pieces of personal identifying information to build a credit profile. So with your name, with your employment history, with your address, and with your date of birth, all that information together, you can begin building credit. They may or may not ask you for, if you do have an ITIN number, but this is not a replacement for your social security number. If you're building a credit profile or you're applying for credit and there's a moment where it asks you what's your social, you don't have one, I would recommend folks not to put their ITIN number because they can still use those other pieces of information to build your profile. They'll know pretty accurately that it's you. Even with this credit profile, you can start having access, like I mentioned at the beginning, if you have a lot of these same goals of building wealth, of purchasing a home, many folks who have been able to get approved for mortgages and buy their homes and begin building wealth without a social security number by responsibly building credit and using the different strategies that are available to them. You can definitely build your credit and your credit profile without a social security number. And the way that they do that is they'll use other pieces of personal identifying information to start building your profile. If you do get your social security number, you can let the credit bureaus know, I have a social security number now, and this is my credit profile. So they'll go ahead and add that information together. So it's not like once you get a social, you have to start from scratch. There are ways that you can add that piece into your credit profile and still keep all the hard work that you did to get your credit good and to do all of these things. So that's also an option. Love it. And for folks that don't know what an ITIN number is, can you just give us a brief explanation? Certainly. Yeah. So ITIN is a number that's assigned to taxpayers who don't have a social security number. So we know, of course, that even folks who don't have social security numbers are contributing massively to the economy. They're working, they're paying sales taxes and different types of taxes, but they may not be paying income taxes. And so the ITIN is the Individual Taxpayer Identification Number, I-T-I-N, that the federal government assigns to people when they begin to file their taxes and begin to pay income taxes and things like this. And this is really important, especially for folks who want to begin asset building and have a goal of home ownership, because of course, you know, part of getting approved for a mortgage and kind of getting into your home is having tax records. By applying for an ITIN number and by filing your taxes, you begin to establish, yes, I've been in this country, I've been working, I've been contributing, I would like to have access to these different opportunities that other people have access to. And that's a really great way that I've seen people to be able to achieve this dream of home ownership, even if they don't have a social security number. Love it. Okay. So we talked a little bit about what you can do in order to build your credit if you want a credit card. But what about if you need like a loan, if you want to buy a car or something like that, can you actually get a loan with bad credit or is it worth trying to wait and improving, which I know can take some time? You bring up a really good question because it kind of shows the other face of what's happening in the credit circle or in the credit world. I'm sure you've seen driving down the road, car companies, they might show bad credit, no credit, no problem type of thing. And these things are really catchy because if I know I've never had credit before, then maybe a big dealership's not going to approve me for a car. And so this might be an option for me. But I think we fall into what we call predatory services or predatory products. And the question is, if I have bad credit or no credit, can I get approved for a loan or a credit card or something like this? Yes, you may get approved, but it's going to be very expensive and the terms are going to be really unfavorable. There's actually evidence out there that 
people that fall prey to predatory services, like some of these bad credit, no credit, no problem car companies, end up in much worse situations because the terms are so unsustainable that really it's meant for you to fail. They don't want you to pay the loan back, but what they want to do is put you into a hole where the interest rates become so high and the payment terms become so unsustainable that, yeah, the only thing that somebody would do is default on it. And to default on it means you really mess up your credit even worse than before. And I would say if you want to get approved for a loan and get a car or some of these other things and you have absolutely no credit, I certainly think that there are people out there that are willing to lend you money and kind of give you that car. But do they have the best intention for you to pay back that loan? I would say no. In fact, they probably are hoping you don't pay back that loan and you get yourself into more trouble than what you started out with. So one of the best ways I would say is looking into some secured credit cards or a secured loan, which works in the same way as a secured credit card, getting your credit score at least in the 660 range. Yeah. Speaking of predatory services, there's a lot of stuff out there around credit repair and paying people to fix your credit what is legitimate and what is not? Because I've seen there's credit counseling companies, there's folks who are advertising their services on Instagram, and it can just feel very shady. What's your take on it? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that falls into what my spiel was at the beginning about really having banks and having financial services that meet people where they are. Banks are not sending people out into multicultural communities that speak the languages that people speak and saying, we can help you fix this for free, or there are ways that we can work with you so that it's not an overwhelming payment for you. But instead, what we see is a lot of these predatory services coming specifically into these communities and saying, hey, if you give us $50 a month, will guarantee your credit report will be cleared. And sometimes if it sounds too good to be true, probably it is, right? And the truth is a lot of the things that these companies do, maybe they do write dispute letters, maybe they do help negotiate debt, maybe they do all of these things. The truth is you can do all these things for free as well. Those extra $50 or whatever it is that they're charging you could be money that maybe you pay down toward your loan or maybe you use in other ways that could be more productive. but it's difficult because creditors are so overbearing, right? Constantly calling and harassing and they have all of these tactics that really what you want is for it just to stop. And if that means I pay somebody for it to stop, good money spent for me or to me. And this is actually where financial coaching and some of these different programs come in because the program that I manage in 45 communities across the country And through financial coaching, we offer these one-on-one, part of it could be credit counseling, right? And so we'll take a look at your credit report. We'll see what needs to be disputed. Maybe some things are in collections and we want to be able to get you back on track. So we'll, we'll do some sort of debt management plan. But these services are completely free to the community at all times. And it's bilingual. We are able to speak to folks in a way that they understand. It's culturally relevant. And so we're not going to say stop paying $50 a month for carne asadas because we know this is important. These are kind of cultural decisions that people make for reasons outside of being financially savvy. I would say just caution to those services or people that say we'll help clear your credit or we'll help write dispute letters for X amount of dollars because a lot of those, all of those services are free. And through programs like ours and the Financial Empowerment Network and others across the country, people are able to have access to these services for free. Yeah. I really want folks to know how that they can access Unidos US, all of your services, all of your programming, how they can not only consume all of the programming that you guys are putting together, but also how can they contribute, right? How can we donate? How can we further the cause? So let us know. Yeah, definitely. So all of the information about the work that we do and ways to support us can be found on our website at www.unidosus.org. And there you'll also find about work that we're doing in the communities. And so our different programming, ways to get plugged in. I would say definitely that's the first place to go. But a lot of the work that we do, because we are 
affiliates with community-based organizations might not be immediately obvious because the work is done through the affiliates at the community level. If you are interested in understanding if there are any affiliates in your area, you can actually check our website also. And it's broken down by affiliates in each state, in each city, the different types of work that they do. So I mentioned some do education programming, some do financial empowerment, some do workforce development. And definitely that would be the first place to get plugged into the work that we're doing at a community level. And then, of course, at a state and federal level, checking again our website, our policy and advocacy priorities, as well as ways that you can donate and help out the work that we're doing. Incredible. And I know you guys are hosting a conference this summer. So can you tell us a little bit about that too? Absolutely. Yeah. We're really excited to be able to bring our conference experience back in person. We took a bit of a break during COVID, of course, but this year we're going to be hosting our flagship annual conference where we bring together different stakeholders in the community, different community leaders, politicians, people that really are coming together with the shared goal of understanding the Latino experience in the United States, helping to build it up, helping to build community. This year, we're going to be in Chicago, Illinois, and that conference is from July 22nd to the 24th. More information is on our website. You'll find links to be able to register. You'll be able to understand our programming, what's going to be happening at different times. This year, actually, we're going to be focusing a lot on home ownership. We understand that home ownership is a big way that historically people have built wealth. For sure, my parents' experience, once they were able to purchase their home, it opened a lot of doors to be able to send us to college, to be able to really form community where they live, to be able to feel like they're contributing and they feel safe. And so that's going to be a big theme of our conference this year. I encourage everyone to get plugged into the work that we're doing. Hopefully we get a chance to meet many people in person. For sure, I'll be there. So keep an eye out for me if any of the work that we're doing around financial empowerment or some of our different programming seems interesting and I hope to be able to see you all there. I love it. Erica, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And for folks that want to find out more about Unidos US, you can go to their website, unidosus.org, and you can check them out on social media, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and more. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing in order to empower our community. We need so many more folks who are really advocating and empowering us to be poderoso. So thank you. Thank you so much. I've had a great time. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you are ready to take your dinero to the next level, sign up for our free 14-page guide, The Financially Lit Latina, the ultimate blueprint for becoming poderosa with your dinero. This 14-page guide includes our best tips on money mindset, budgeting, debt repayment, career, investing, financial independence, side hustles, and more. And you can get it completely free. So to get your copy of the Financially Lit Latina, just head over to YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start. That's YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start and start transforming your dinero story today. Until next time, stay empowered, stay inspired, and stay poderosa.
the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast and associated entities, all information provided is for general information purposes only and does not constitute accounting, legal tax, or other professional advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this podcast and associated entities and disclaim all liability with respect to such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Usage of this podcast and associated contents constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.